but I, I thought we would go into probably the most difficult and challenging of texts in the Bible about discipleship. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Luke 14, 25 to 33. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Let's start with the beginning. Begin with the beginning. Uh, we read that there were large crowds following Jesus. He is at the height of his popularity here. Yeah, if you think about him as a social media influencer, he's got millions of Instagram followers at this moment. People are hanging on his every word. His influence is increasing. His reach is expanding. His voice is being magnified. And you kind of figure this is a good thing, right? Like Jesus has a good message. If lots of people are following him, listening to him, this, this is awesome, right? Because for a lot of people and for a lot of institutions, the crowds are your number one indicator of success. That's what tells you if you're going in the right direction. That's the metric that you look at. Are people coming? Are they with us? Are they, are they, are they being drawn to this? Because that means that we're doing something right. And this is what a lot of leaders do when that happens. They become consumed with keeping the crowds. They, they, they become very worried that they will lose the crowds. This is what happens with some churches. Maybe they start out and they're, they're bold. They stand for something. They speak truth. And, and they become popular. People are, are coming. Maybe hundreds, maybe thousands. Not in Vancouver, but maybe in the United States. Thousands are coming, right? Like it, it, they're, they're flocking to this. And then all of, the, all of a sudden the pastor goes, man, if, if I say something that rubs people the wrong way, that, that might really, that, that might stop this. You know, the, our, the, all that reach and that influence that might start decreasing. Giving might go down. This is bad news. And so maybe even without thinking about it too much, you start to avoid difficult subjects and you start to soften your convictions a little bit because you don't want to lose the crowds. And I'm, you know, this is by no means a, a big mega church or anything like that, but I, I, you know, I felt that temptation. You see new people coming and you go, ah, if I say this over here, that might rub people the wrong way. Do I really want to do that today, you know? And so I get that. But look what Jesus does. He turns to the crowds and he says the most alienating things possible. He says things that seem to deliberately be about actually thinning the crowds and sending people packing. He says things that were as offensive to their ears as they are to ours. And you'd have to say, from a human point of view, this does not seem like a very smart move, right? 
Like if Jesus had a board of directors, I think they'd be calling him in after this, after this message. You're like, Jesus, I think we might have to cut your funding. You know, if you're going to keep on talking like this, this is not good. And this is not a slight against our board, by the way, at all. I love, I love our leaders, appreciate them deeply. But if, if your whole vision is numbers or other easy-to-grasp human metrics, then what Jesus says here seems absolutely irresponsible. What does he say? He says that you cannot be his disciple. And let's just clear something out of the way really quick here. When he talks about a disciple, we're not talking about like a platinum level membership in the club of Jesus, whereas, you know, you can get a bronze level kind of membership that doesn't cost as much and doesn't have as many benefits. Like this isn't Costco, right? Like it's, it's a disciple and, and a follower and a Christian. It's all the same thing biblically. There's no, there's no difference, okay? So Jesus says you can't be a disciple. You can't be a follower. You can't associate yourself with my name really and truly unless... You hate your father, you hate your mother, you hate your spouse, you hate your children, you hate your brothers, you hate your sisters. No mention of in-laws, they're safe. (laughs) But you can't be his disciple unless you hate those closest to you. Now, I know what you're thinking, because it's the thing I think right away as well. Like, surely it can't mean what it seems to mean, right? Surely... Jesus can't mean that you actually have to despise your children and treat them terribly in order to be his disciple. I'll give you some relief right away. It doesn't mean that. It's incredibly challenging what Jesus says, but it doesn't mean that. And there are two reasons why I I can say that. One is because of the very clear biblical commands in other places that you are to love those around you. I mean, honor your father and mother. That's a really big deal in the Bible. That's one of the top 10, right? One of the 10 commandments. Paul even mentions that text and he he says, look, this command is distinctive because it comes with a promise. It's a really big deal to honor your father and mother. In that same New Testament passage in Ephesians 5, Paul says that husbands are to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church, that they are to love their wives so much that they would actually give up their lives for them. Jesus himself says that the whole of the biblical law, all of God's counsels, his will, is summarized in two commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love one another as yourself, which I would think surely includes your parents, your spouse, your children, your siblings, and so on. So to detest your family, to treat them with contempt, cannot be what Jesus means here because that would contradict other very clear biblical commands. The second reason we can say that, that this is not what it seems to mean at first, is because of the, wor- the way the word hate is used in other biblical contexts. So for example, in Genesis 29, we get the story of Jacob. And Jacob loves Rachel attracted to Rachel, wants to marry Rachel. But he gets tricked into accidentally marrying Rachel's sister Leah. And if you're wondering, how do you get tricked into marrying somebody? Uh, Alcohol and darkness are probably the two primary ingredients in that. But in any case, he gets tricked into marrying Leah. So now he's married to two women, Leah and Rachel. And, And we read in Genesis 29 that God saw that Leah was hated And so he opened up her womb and enabled her to have children. He had compassion on her because she was hated. Now in Genesis, does Jacob actually hate Leah? 
Or is it, and I think this is more consistent with the text, that Jacob clearly prefers Rachel? That he, he loves Rachel. He would, he would choose Rachel any day of the week over Leah. He has a passion for Rachel that doesn't, that just like his, whatever passion he might have for Leah pales in comparison to what he has for Rachel. Same kind of deal in, uh, in Romans chapter 9 where um, we read that God, and this is again about Jacob, but now about his brother Esau, that God hated Esau, but he loved Jacob. Now when you go back to Genesis, did God actually hate Esau and treat him terribly? Because we actually read in Genesis that God blessed him with livestock and with children and with spouses. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, we read God telling the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob, that they are not to set foot in Edom, the land of the descendants of Esau, because God had given that land to Esau as his inheritance. Do you do that to someone that you hate? No, instead, biblically speaking, God has chosen Jacob over Esau. He chose Jacob to be the ancestor, the forefather of his people. He has made a priority. He has, he has made a choice, a preference of Jacob over Esau. That's what this language is about. And so if you bring that to Luke chapter 14, the idea here is that if you're a follower of Jesus, there is an allegiance and a commitment in your life that goes deeper than family ties. It runs thicker than blood. That you will have a passion in your life that is greater than any other human relationship, that you will have a love in your life that transcends any other human relationship. And that passion, that commitment, that allegiance, that love is for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's, it's your relationship with Christ that comes first by far. And, and I know this, this, is, this is challenging for us, even though we live in a pretty individualistic kind of society. Can you imagine how challenging it would have been in Jesus' day. I mean, some of you come from cultural backgrounds where there is a much greater emphasis placed on family ties and loyalty than there is in our Western culture, thinking specifically of Asian cultural backgrounds. And you'll get a better sense of this because this was kind of Jesus' first century Middle Eastern world, this, this real pressure to fall in line with the family. What Jesus says here is not just, it's not just countercultural or startling, it's offensive to say that, that there's something that is even more important than all of this other stuff. That if you are a follower of Jesus, you have to be willing to let your whole family down. You have to be okay with having relationships cut off because of your love for Jesus. If there are competing interests between your spouse, your children, your parents... And what Jesus calls you to do, being a disciple of Jesus, means you go with Jesus every single time. And it's not even just family, by the way. Because I know, like, in our Western culture, it's kind of cool to, like, rebel against your family and do something a little bit different. But there is still this intense pressure to fit into the mold of society, the mold of our culture. It's not just family. It's the world as a whole. James, uh, James 4, verse 4, says, Don't you know... That friendship with the world means enmity against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Uh, Jesus says in John 15, 
If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. See, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are going to believe things that cause some people in the world to hate you, to see you badly. You are going to live in ways that mark you out in our culture, in our society. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have to be okay with that. You cannot live for the approval of the world. You can't live for the approval of your parents or the approval of your spouse. You must live only for the approval of Jesus. That must be the number one commitment in your life. You know, God has, has done some, um, this past summer, God worked in my life in, in a lot of ways. I'll tell you about one. Carolyn and I were at a pastor's conference a few weeks ago. I wrote about it in that novel I put into the newsletter this past week. It got lost in, in there somewhere. Um, but, uh, but we were at this pastor's retreat, and it was, it was just an incredible time. In, in one session, it's, it, we're having this extended time of worship. And for a while, well, all my life, I've been, I've been dealing with these long, festering wounds in my life that have to do with rejection, feeling let down, uh, especially by mentors, by father figures in, in my life. But even beyond that, even, you know, if, if people have come to the bridge and then left, you kind of feel this rejection, right? And so I'm just kind of dealing with all that, that, that feeling. And then within that, there's also this feeling like, and I've struggled with this sometimes, I'll be totally honest, that God perhaps has rejected me. That he's, has, have any of you struggled with that before? Wondering, like, is God just kind of done with me? Is he kind of like, ah, oh, whatever, you know? And, and so I'm sitting there and I'm, and I'm wrestling with this. And, 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 and I think God starts to bring to mind all of these people, all of these situations, all of these people that I have felt rejected by, let down by. And, and, and then at the end, I'm like, God, but, but you're kind of part of this picture too. And then he showed me, and I, I wouldn't say it wasn't like an audible voice, but he showed me, he spoke to me in some way and showed me that the reason that I have felt rejection from him is because I cared so much about acceptance from all of those other people. That I was so consumed with gaining their approval that I had placed their approval at the same level, if not even higher, than God. And I just realized in that moment, I, I gotta let that go. This is, this is a major thing. And, and so I kind of repented of that. I'm saying, God, I just want to seek your face. And, and it's, it's, it's just been a few weeks. But I would say even from that moment, there were some chains that got broken in that moment. There, there was a healing that began. I have felt that, that some of that bitterness has, has, has washed away, that my love for God has increased, that in fact God has put a passion in my life for him that I actually haven't had for a few years. And it was a reminder of how easy it is to miss these crucial, central things about following Jesus. That our desire for him, our desire for his approval, our love for him, is to be so much greater than any other relationship that it's like the difference between love and hate. And you might push back against that. You might protest that. You might say, no, come on. Jesus is lucky to be in my life at all. Doesn't he know that? I and mean, if, he, if he's in the picture at all, you know, he should be okay with that. He should be content with that. There's no way Jesus would actually ask this. I'm sorry, but that option is just not on the table. When it comes to Jesus, it's all in 
or it's not in at all. And if that's challenging, then I think what Jesus says next is even more challenging, especially in our culture. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. See, the first one is, is challenging because it says, what are you, whose approval are you living for? But, but this one says that, that you actually need to take up your cross. You, you need to die. Now, when we read this, I know right away as we think about, well, we think about the cross of Jesus. We think about Easter. But you have to realize that when Jesus said this, Easter hadn't happened yet. It wasn't like people were like, oh, it's like Easter and there's a happy ending and there's a resurrection. Yeah, I get it. I can do that. It wasn't like that. That hadn't happened yet. Instead, people would have been thinking about the crucifixions they saw on a fairly regular basis. They would have thought of people who were carrying their cross, who were condemned to die, people who had given up all their worldly hopes and ambitions. They had nothing left. They were just going to their death. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, that's what it's like. Again, I think Jesus would flunk Marketing 101, don't you? Hey, I'm going to start this movement and uh, if you join it, you'll be like the saddest, most pitiable, hopeless people on earth. Who's in? Who wants, uh, who wants to sign up? Come on. Now, he doesn't actually mean that you're going to be sad and pitiable and, and hopeless. But again, he does mean something pretty radical. He does mean that you are actually going to die a death if you are one of his disciples. And specifically, I believe the language is about dying a death to self. That you are going to die a death to self. You are giving up the need to always have your own way. You are giving up the desire to build your own little kingdom, to live for your own status, for your own recognition, for your own comfort. You are dying to personal hopes and selfish dreams. You are living for a whole new reason. This is what this is what Paul writes in Galatians. This is an astounding statement. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, partly because I just have to come back to it again and again. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul says, I, I, I've died. Paul, Paul, Paul isn't here anymore. Paul doesn't exist anymore. I don't live for Paul anymore. I live for Christ. Christ lives in me. He lives through me. That's what my life is all about now. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And you might go, well, that's Paul. You want a guy. Wow. Wow, that's incredible, that level of commitment. Here's the thing, though. According to Jesus, this is not a special claim for, for Paul. This, this is for all of us. That if you are his... If you are his disciple, you have died a death to self. And again, this is really, really challenging in our day, in our culture, because we live in a culture that worships the self, don't we? We live in a culture where self is the ultimate God, the ultimate authority. So an interesting thought that much smarter people, which is actually a lot easier than you might think to find people who are much smarter than me, but uh, what, what, they have, what they have kind of pointed out. You see, uh, Western culture was once a, a polytheistic pagan society, right? Lots of different gods, all kinds of things going on. But what we saw for 1,000, 2,000 years almost 
was the significant influence of monotheistic Christian faith that really transformed things and was the root of so much of what we enjoy in, in society now. You had that for, for quite a while, but what we've seen in recent years, of course, is this quick, very rapid movement away from that influence of Christian faith in, in our culture. Well, we call it post, you know, we live in a post-Christian kind of world. But of course, what's happening is not that a whole bunch of people are like, let's go back to that old thing over there. I mean, how many temples of Zeus have you seen being built in North Vancouver recently? I haven't seen any. It's not like we're going back to that. Instead, where, where, where do we go? Here's what one guy, David Bentley Hart, says. He says, the Christian God has taken up everything into himself. All the treasures of ancient wisdom, all the splendor of creation, every good thing has been assumed into the story of the incarnate God. And every stirring toward transcendence is soon recognized by the modern mind, weary of God though it might be, as leading back towards faith. The Christian God has taken up everything into himself, even those stirrings towards something greater lead back to faith. And so what do we do? The only cult that can truly thrive in the aftermath of Christianity is a narrow service of the self, of the impulses of the will, of the nothingness that is all the withdrawal of Christianity leaves behind. All that's left when you leave a God who is sovereign over all, almighty God, is self. And so... In our Western culture, we worship the self. And wherever we do believe in God, God is mostly just a servant to the self. God exists to affirm the things I already believe, to make me feel good about myself. And this kind of thing has infected the church too. It feels like every other week that I hear a story about some church leader, some pastor who has fallen. Fallen because they were living for their own ego, their own self-esteem. They didn't have any boundaries. Maybe they were living for financial gain. They were living for sexual pleasure. And because they were living for self, they fell, devastated many. How much division and dissension exists in the church in relationships between people because people are so consumed with getting their way and expanding their kingdoms. How often have I taken some slight word of criticism and let it destroy me and destroy my relationships with others because I was too busy living for my own ego than for the kingdom of God? See, this whole worship of the self, we see it everywhere. And, I, and I'll tell you something, that authentic growth, not just numbers and crowds, but authentic spiritual growth and transformation will happen here at the Bridge Church to the extent to which we die to self. To the extent to which I, as a pastor, and our other leaders die to self. That's how real growth will come. I was reading a book by the pastor Mark Sayers recently, and he says that the churches that do not fade and disappear in the third culture of the West, it's kind of the whole like, First culture was the poly polytheism. Second monotheism. Third is the, the self. The third culture of the West will be churches that preach, teach, and live out the truth that we are called to live as slaves of Christ. A church fragrance of selflessness 
in a culture of selfishness. This is what's going to set us apart. This is how we get back to the basics. This is how we actually follow Jesus. Again, you can push back. You might say, ah, come on. There's no way Jesus would ask me to give up anything, right? That's what a lot of us think. We're like, come on. Jesus wouldn't ask me to give up anything. I can have it all. I can have the status. I can have the riches. I can have the notoriety. I can have all the approval and I'll have Jesus as well. That's fine. That should be fine. Again, it's just not on the table. It just doesn't work. It's not an option. When it comes to Jesus, it's all in or it's not in at all. And that leads to the third, you cannot be my disciple unless kind of phrase here. Where Jesus uses two parables. And these are parables about big projects, big undertakings, right? Building a tower, construction metaphor. Going to war, a military metaphor. And Jesus says, if you're going to do one of those things, if you're going to do one of these big projects, you got to make sure that you have what it takes. That you count the cost beforehand and you say, okay, this is what it's going to require. I've got it. I can do this. Don't be naive. Think especially about an honor-shame society. Like some of you come from and was, was true of Jesus' first century Middle Eastern kind of culture. You know, if, if you're walking along the road and you're like, you see this five-foot-high wall, and you go, what, what's that doing there? And your friend goes, oh, didn't you hear? Jedediah was going to build the biggest tower in the world, and that's as far as he got. And you're like, what an idiot, that Jedediah. I don't know why it's Jedediah, but, but Jedediah doesn't want that. He doesn't want people to talk like that. And so he makes sure that he has what it takes before he goes into it. You know, uh, for Carolyn and I, one of our favorite uh, things we do in ministry together is, is premarital counseling. And um, I, I use this, this assessment resource. And one of, the, one of the things, among many, that this assessment measures is something called idealistic distortion. And so a few of you have done this with me, and you're maybe you're remembering, remembering these questions. Questions like, so you're supposed to either agree or disagree with statements like, uh, my partner and I understand each other completely. Or uh, every new thing I've ever learned about my partner pleases me. Um, so those kinds of things. And so you just imagine some young, uh, impressionist, whatever, impressionable uh, couples who are filling this out and going like, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Oh, absolutely. We're going we're gonna to ace this test. We're going to get A+. Plus. Oh, yeah, we're going to like get our marriage fast-tracked here. This is going to be great. And it's all a trap. It's a trick. Because you're not supposed to agree with those questions. Because anybody who's been married for any length of time will tell you that you don't always understand each other. And certainly not every new thing you learn is going to please you. Once you learn that your partner snores like a hibernating bear and flails their arms in bed while they sleep, you think you're going to go, that's really cute. I really love that. I have, to sleep. I have to sleep in the basement every night. You know, I can't sleep in the same bed, but I love it. It just pleases me so much. <laughs> See, one of the things you want to do in premarital counseling is to kind of get things on the table and be like, look, this is, this is, what's, this is, this is the realistic picture of, of marriage. It's not this never-ending fairy tale like some cheap Hollywood movie. This is, this is going to be one of the most challenging things you ever do. It might, it might take everything of you. And the more you understand that, the more you understand what you're getting into, the better able you're actually able to say, I do, with any integrity, the more, the more durable, the more solid your marriage is going to be. Because here's the thing. If you assume that it's going to cost everything, 
then you'll be prepared for anything. I'll say that again. If you assume that it's going to cost everything, then you're prepared for anything. See, what if following Jesus is going to require your very life? And you might go, well, I live in Canada. There's no way. And maybe you're right. It probably probably isn't going to require your actual life. You're not going to get killed for your faith. Probably. It could cost that. does cost that sometimes in other countries. But what if it costs you your, your status in the world? What if it costs you some close relationships? People who go, oh, is that what you're about now? I don't really want to have anything to do with you. What if it costs you some dreams and ambitions you had that you realize that's just not going to work anymore? And what if it does cost you your life? See, if you go into it saying, okay, it might require this. This might happen, but I'm still choosing to follow him. That's a disciple. That's a follower of Jesus. Again, you might say, just come on, there's got to be an easier way. There's no way that's actually what I have to be prepared to do. And again, I'm telling you, according to Jesus, that's the way it is. It's all in or it's not in at all. Now the question, I think, for a lot of us is, well, if that's the cost, what are we doing here? I mean, that, that's huge. That's everything. I've never been asked for that much in my life. Why would I give that? Why would I be willing to give up everything I have for him? I can think of three, three reasons, and we'll go through these a bit more quickly. The first is that it is right to go all in on Jesus simply because he's worthy of it. Given who he is, the stakes are that high. Not everything in life is. Let's say you and I have a disagreement. You say, I think paper straws are a great way to care for the environment. And I say, well, I think paper straws have been invented by evil scientists to induce misery in human beings whenever they use them. You might say, well, would you stake your life on that? And I'd be like, I'm pretty sure I'm right, but I'm not going to go that far, right? Some of you, you're all very, like, staunch defenders of paper straws, aren't you? This is very, this is very personal. You're like, I love paper straws. They're the best thing ever. <laughs> the point is, it's a stupid, trivial thing. It's not, it's not worth staking anything on, even if you have some strong beliefs about it. Jesus is an entirely different matter. What, I want you to hear these words from Colossians 1. Paul writes these words. He says, the Son, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, Jesus is not 
He's not just a, he's not just a, a historical figure. He's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher among others. He is not just a miracle worker or a prophet or a religious innovator or a leader of some kind. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one through whom all things were made. He's the one who holds all things together. He's the one who has brought reconciliation between God and people. If that's who he is, you're, you're going to tell me he's not worth it? He's worth everything. He is worthy of us going all in for him simply by virtue of who he is. Second, it's right to go all in on Jesus because he went all in for us. Um, during the pandemic, I, I watched The Last Dance, a docu You're like, wow, Craig, I didn't think you would watch a movie about dancing. I wouldn't, and it wasn't about that. It was about the 1990 Chicago Bulls centering on Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time. And if you think that that's not true and that it's LeBron James, you're out to lunch and know nothing about basketball, and we can talk about it later. So um, anyways, what I, what, I, what I knew as a kid, of course, was Michael Jordan was awesome, but also I knew that he was driven to win. I knew that, that he had this passion to win. I didn't understand when I was a kid growing up in the 90s how much he drove his teammates along with this, how, how, he, how he pushed them so hard. One of the episodes in the docuseries uh, focuses on the question of whether Michael Jordan was actually a bully with his, his teammates. And his response was, well, I, I just wanted to win so badly and I wanted my teammates to come along with that. I wanted them to win too. And he said this, he said, I never asked my teammates to do anything I wasn't willing to do and more. And you knew that about him. He wasn't like some general sitting in the safety of headquarters while he sends his troops in, into enemy lines. He was the first in the gym, the last out of it. He worked harder than anybody. He went all in, and he wanted others to go all in too. Now, please understand, I am not making a general comparison between Michael Jordan and Jesus. Not one bit, okay? Let's be very clear about that. That docuseries makes very clear that their characters are pretty, pretty far apart, miles apart. But in this way, along with any good leader, you see a comparison. That, that good leaders are those who are willing to go above and beyond what they're asking others to do. And if that's true of good leaders, then it's true of Jesus to the ultimate extent. Remember, so think about Colossians 1. Think about who Jesus is and all his greatness, all his glory. Uh, if you were here last week when Dr. Clement Tong uh, opened up Philippians 2. It was so good. And, and in Philippians 2, we read about how Jesus, while being in very nature God, didn't consider that something to be used to his own advantage, but he emptied himself. He took on human flesh. He, 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 and he left the glories of heaven to become one of us. That's, that's going pretty far. And then Philippians 2 says that he took on the form of a servant. That, that's going even further. He didn't come and live the life of some pampered king. He was a servant. And then it goes even further than that. Philippians 2 says that Jesus humbled himself and submitted to death on a cross. The image of the invisible God through whom all things were made was, willed, was willing to be hated and despised by sinful humans and to be hung on a cross to die one of the most shameful and humiliating deaths 
possible. If that's not going all in, I don't know what is. Jesus is the very definition of going all in, holding nothing back. And you know why he did this? He did this for us. He did this for you. He did this for me. He did this as as a sacrifice for our sin. He did this so that we could have peace with God and be reconciled to him. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says that God God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. This was the passion of Jesus for you and for me, that he held nothing back, gave his life, gave up his status, gave up his glory so that you could be forgiven. And so it is right to go all in on Jesus because he went all in for us. And third and finally, it's right to go all in on Jesus because because this is the way to real life. In his majestic letter to the Romans, Paul writes, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. That's, that's that whole taking up your cross thing. That's, that's the dying to self thing. That's what happens when you're a disciple of Jesus. Paul says we did that in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. See, you might might think this whole idea of going all in for Jesus sounds like a lot of drudgery and a lot of misery. It sounds like, you know, you have to be willing to give up everything. How terrible is this? I'll tell you the truth. It's about life. That's the way you get to real life and not just eternal life, not just the hope of eternal life, which it is that as well, but that when you give everything to Jesus, when you go all in, you actually experience life as it is meant to be lived. See, I've experienced this in my own life that when I I hold things back from Jesus, I find that actually I myself am held back in bondage. And yet when I give everything, when I release that control to him, and I say, I'm all for you. That's when I'm filled with his joy. That's when I get a taste of his his glory. And I promise you this, that if you ask anybody you know who has gone all in on Jesus, if they have experienced life to an extent, to a measure that they hadn't before, if they truly have gone all in, it might have cost them a lot. They might have gone through hardships, but I promise you they will say yes. I promise you they will say yes, that they have received life in a way they didn't know before by going all in. See, every year in the fall, I I, I open up um, the fall, this this kind of new season as a church with with a message about where we're going. What direction are we headed? And this, this passage and this phrase of all in has been on my heart for months. That God has kind of laid this on my heart. And, and I really do think it's, it's just a reflection of our vision statement. We live, everything we do, we live to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. That's just another way of saying this. But, but just this idea of being all in has just, has just stuck with me. It's just, it's just been this, this on, it's been on repeat. Like this is what we have to be about as a church. We cannot be a church that is about accumulating numbers and drawing a crowd 
and gaining the approval of, of, a, of a world, of a society out there. We can't be a church that is just known for programs or for a certain kind of worship music or for a certain kind of preaching. We must be known as a church that is all in on Jesus. And this is my invitation to you personally that you would make that commitment to go all in on Jesus. Not just all in on a church, on a specific church, all in on Jesus. And look, if, you, if you're there and, and, and you're just like, like I'm, I'm still not ready, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in that place yet. I'm not saying you're not welcome here. I'm so glad that you're here. You just need to know I'm going to continue to encourage us in this direction. Because because that halfway thing, that lukewarm thing, that riding on the fence thing where you kind of like check off a box on a census and show up at church once in a while, it, that, that's, what, that's what's miserable. That's where there's no progress, no growth, no transformation. I, I just want you to experience more of Jesus. I, I want you to know what following him is really truly like and to receive that life that comes through that. And if you haven't made that decision and you're sitting there and you're listening to this for the first time, well, now you know the cost. You know the cost. And the question is, do you trust Jesus enough to take him up on the challenge? And for all of us, I want to be clear that going all in on Jesus is not a one-time thing. You don't do it once and then you're like, okay, I'm good. It, it's, it's, it's something you'll need to do often. Say to him, okay, no. I got to give that up too. I got to surrender again. And you might go years in your life following him like I have. And all of a sudden there's a new, there's a new area that Jesus shows you. And you're, oh, I didn't go all in in that, in that area. And so it's, it's a process. But, but the point here today is that it really comes down to the heart. The heart of a follower of Jesus is a heart that says, I am all in. Jesus is everything to me. He's my life. He's my joy. He is the source of my, my hope. The heart of a disciple of Jesus doesn't want to hold anything back from him and says, you are number one and it's not even close. That's what we want to be about. That's where we want to go. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for your, your goodness to us. Your patience with us, Lord. And I've seen it in my own life. That I've just, I've spent years just not getting it. And yet you keep on speaking and you, you keep on, you keep on calling me, Lord, to real abundant life in you. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you that your love endures forever. Thank you, Lord, that, that even when we've said no so many times, that the moment we say yes, the moment we turn to you, you just you embrace us like the prodigal son who, who lives in denial of his real identity for years and years and years. But the moment he, he turns back and comes home, you embrace him, you run out 
to him. You welcome him home. You throw a party. God, we thank you that while you are so holy and awesome, you are so good and so gracious. Jesus, I thank you that you, that you went all in for us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your humility. Thank you for your passion, your love for us, Lord, that even when we were dead in our transgressions, you have made us alive in Christ. Lord, I want to pray for our church. I pray, Lord, that our church, our leaders, would truly be all in for you. Not living for approval or status or recognition, but just devoted to you. I pray that, Lord, for each one here today. Would you move in their hearts? Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would move in their hearts. Show them, Lord, that a life that is halfway is, is nothing. But that going all in for you, Lord, is the way that they can know you and walk in the joy and the freedom that you want to give them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.